of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become podcasts. Hello there, welcome to The Dragon Reread. We're rereading Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series of fantasy novels. I'm Jeff Lake. I'm Alice Sullivan. And I'm Micah Sparkman. And today we're going to cover chapters 26 through 31 right. of The Eye of the World, the first book of The Wheel of Time. But first, last time... Oh, yeah, last time... So Perrin and Egwene did a really bad job of fast-traveling to Camelon. They just got super lost. But on the bright side, they made some new friends who are wolves and also wolf-related people. So that's nice. <laughs> In fact, Perrin started to feel a little wolfy himself. Yeah, they got some wolf stuff going on. Uh, meanwhile, Rand and Matt were flunking out of Gleeman School. Did not go well for them. But Matt got to show Rand his secret evil dagger that's totally fine and not a problem at all. Everyone's going to be okay with that dagger, I'm sure. Uh, the traveling people, they talk about the Way of the Leaf, which is clearly a weed reference. And also they get in some ominous tale about dark goings on. I don't know. So something evil is happening. That's yeah, it. They, <laughs> they had a cool story. Something evil is happening somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, like two years ago, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the reading started today with chapter 26, White Bridge, with a, an icon of a, what is the Gleeman's harp. Yes. We, we think that's a Gleeman's harp. Yeah, it looks, yeah, it looks awfully harpy. You know, I'm thinking for Tom, instead of the Gleeman's harp, I really feel like a better icon for him would be the mustaches. Because (laughs) within the first three pages of the chapter, he tugs at the end of a mustache, harumphs and blows out his mustache, and then blows out his mustache again. Yeah, he's really all about the mustache. It's very expressive. He's a Gleeman, you know, he's he's supposed to have a lot of moves, and so he's got a lot of mustache moves, (laughs) Every, every time they say he blows out his mustache, as I try and imagine what that looks like, I cannot picture that. Like, he's just like, he's just like, <laughs> he's just like blowing into him and they're like flying out of the yeah, air. Imagine, like, raspberries. imagine if you never trimmed your mustache because because you, you're living a, a, a sad world with no electric razors. And so there was just hairs in front of your mouth all the time and you blow them out like a, like a shower curtain. Yeah. Okay. Actually, Listeners, we are all blowing our mustaches right now. <laughs> especially Alex. Yeah, especially me. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of, uh, Tom is in this chapter, and uh, they're traveling down the river, and uh, basically Rand and Matt suck at what Tom is trying to teach them. <laughs> Matt sucks at playing the flute, and uh, Tom is teaching them both to like, you know, do gleam and stuff still, which is very entertaining to everybody on the boat. Uh, when they come around a corner and they see White Bridge... Which is a city named White Bridge because there's a giant white bridge whoa, in the city. Whoa, whoa, slow down. I, I don't understand. <laughs> and so they're not creative with the naming. But I really dig this white bridge. Like, the way yeah. they're describing it sounds it's, awesome. Yeah, it's more than just a big white bridge. It's like a magic thing. It's I've always had a little trouble understanding exactly what it looks like because they say it, it leaps up and arcs through the air. And it, it looks super thin. It's like looks like it's made of milky glass. It's pale and white. But uh, they say it's stronger than any steel. And, and it, it's... It's not slippery at all. Yeah. Well, one of the characters at one point later on describes it as the bridge is looking like it's made of glass lace, which I thought was a super cool description. Well, it's very impressive because it looks like it looks like nothing they've ever seen—a giant glass thing that arcs through the air—and mm. uh, the ship docks at the at White Bridge, and uh, Bail Dalmon specifically kicks Florin Gelb, the mean crewman, off the boat for being mean. And and goes off, and all these merchants show up to deal with Domon, so he's just doing business. Mm. And uh, Rand, Matt, and Tom get off, and Domon tries to get Tom to stay. And this is an interesting conversation, because he knows he's driving the crew really hard, and he wants Tom to stay on entertaining the crew, and he says that he's it's too bad that Florin Gelb just got kicked off, because everybody hated him. He and, could be the whipping boy. Yeah, yeah. so that was, it's, uh, that was interesting. Like, he knew what was going on with that. That was on purpose. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the whole time Tom was, you know, su- suggesting that a mutiny might happen, and sometimes they were actually saying it, which was, you know, not not great. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, like maybe maybe Domon's tipping his hand and saying the only reason he knew that there was mutiny on their on their minds, but Gelb was the only thing. Yeah, well, right. yeah, maybe a combination of the Gleeman entertaining them and and the ability to have somebody to hate was keeping them entertained. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's but that's kind of a dark thing for him to say. I, I felt, I mean, I, I understand that Gelb is kind of a bad dude, but I, f- I felt a little bad for him, because, like, everyone seems to kind of hate him. He must have a mis- really miserable t- time at his job, right? I yeah, mean, I'm confused, because Doman uh, kicked him off because he, I, I thought he kicked him off because he was a malcontent who was trying to spread his malcontentedness to <laughs> to everybody else, but then Doman says, well, except I like having him as a whipping boy, so... Yeah. He did like having him being a yeah, dick, right? essentially. But he and he's like, I'm just kicking him off because I said I would and I do what I say I do. Yeah. I do be doing what I say I do be doing. <laughs> Something like do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. So yeah, then uh but Tom says no, he's not gonna stay on because uh you know, he thinks about it. He's really tempted because they want to go down to Ilion. Apparently he thinks he can make a lot of money in Ilion because of the great hunt going on right now. Which we don't even really know what that means. Well, we we had some idea because Tom's told the story of the Great Hunt a few times, and we so we know that. Well, we don't know really what they're the hunt for the horn, whatever. Yeah, that Alien means, is right? calling the Great Hunt for the horn, and they want heroes to come and do it. Uh, but Tom says, "No, I gotta, I gotta stick with these boys." And now Tom is he no longer has any excuse for hanging out with these guys. Usually, it used to be he was saying, "I'm just traveling with you guys because it's safer than than going by myself with all these Trollocs around." Yeah. But now it's it's clearly more dangerous to be with these guys, and he's still looking out for them. It does seem kind of suspicious in a way, because you know, yeah, if, if it would make way more sense for him to want to go where the the hunt for the horn is, he I think he even mentions that it's like this is the next, this is where the next age of stories is, is going to come from. Probably, yeah. you know. Also, right. wasn't there some sort of competition going on among performers who could best perform the hunt yeah, of the that's horn right. that ballad? Said that, yeah, or, yeah, there'd be a camp, yeah competition. Which, yeah. Would so definitely be money. something Tom would be interested in. Yeah. Because he's the, a really good Gleeman, apparently. Yeah, who just happened to be in Two Rivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's the best Gleeman, the best. <laughs> a super Gleeman. Yeah, so Tom uh, leads the leads Rand and Matt to an inn, a specific inn, because it's near where the, the White Bridge comes down. Uh, and so they would have seen any strangers, like the incredibly strange traveling party of their friends. Yeah. And uh, ask around, and we get a little bit of news. The, the false dragon that we've been talking about for this whole time and haven't met yet has been captured by the Aes Sedai, which is big news. And they're, like, parading him, it sounds like. Yeah, they're parading him like a prisoner of war or something all the way to Tar Valon, where they're going to gentle him. And his name is Loghain. And that's interesting because basically all these townspeople, they hate Aes Sedai and they hate... Loghain and they hate channelers. They hate all these people, and one of these people they hate want to fight against the other people they hate, and they're all going to go watch the parade. Yeah, well, I mean, even even if they dislike all of these people, it's still like uh, it's still the kind of thing that you tell your grandkids about. I think is what they say. You know, yeah. it's like this is this is a big story. You know, well, they and, just they hate anybody who's associated with the one power. True. Yeah, I think that's it. So Loghain is going to be paraded north. He's going to be shown to Queen Morghese, who we now learn is the, the queen of Andor, which is the, the country that they're in, which we learn that they're in the country of Andor. And uh, he tells them that, that Ilion is called the Great Hunt of the Horn from the innkeeper, and Tom sings a little bit of the Great Hunt song again. I always like it when Tom sings. 
and uh, they learn that they're no one has seen their their friends, but they freak out the innkeeper when they ask about their friends because several other people have been asking about these specific people also. Yeah, he gets really shifty. Like the, the innkeeper yeah. already already doesn't seem to be an upstanding dude, but when they mention this, like things get real sour yeah. real fast. Like a, a crazy beggar looking dude has been asking around about them, and also what can only be a fade. Has been asking around, and he scared the crap out of everybody. This is surprising to me. I did not know that Fades would like walk into a town. Yeah, that surprised me too. I thought they were these kind of creepy supernatural creatures who hung out on the periphery and could never pass as human whatsoever. But they're able to come into town and just have, make conversation, which I is was confusing they, to me. I guess if they keep their cloaks up, this is this town is at the White Bridge, so they get lots and lots of strangers. Sure, it may be that this this place in particular is safe. Although that doesn't really make sense, because the only reason the, Mir- the Mirdral is safe is that nobody recognizes what he is. Mm-hmm. And in this place, with lots of travelers, you'd think they might know. Well, I mean, they're still pretty far from the Blight. And I, I get the impression that you never see Trollocs, let alone Mirdral, outside of the Blight, right? Or outside of the Borderlands. So the fact that they're that far south might mean that, you know, they, they, they never have. They may... And, and remember, when the, the Two Rivers people were first talking about Fades, they were saying, oh, they're really, they're huge, and they breathe fire, or something, you know, something crazy yeah, like that. Yeah, 20 so, foot tall or something, yeah. So they may not expect a Fade to be, like, a a, a, mm-hmm. a tall guy with a cloak who sounds like bones, yeah, files. Yeah, boys like bone, a file, file on a bone or something. The yeah. innkeeper had another word, another way to describe it, which was okay, something like a snake going through leaves or something like that. <laughs> So Tom, yeah, after hearing this, Tom tries to talk them into going to Ilion, but they find out, because uh, Florin Gelb, the, the shifty guy from the boat, has come in and is telling everybody that he can find that these guys, that Tom and Rand and Matt, are involved with Trollocs somehow, because he's just got a super grudge against these guys, and he's really out to get them. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, again, I, I think I mentioned this last time, I'm having a little bit of trouble with Gelb and his, like, his single-minded focus on, like, ruining their lives, because it really, like, he would have been okay on the boat if he had not been acting like such an asshole about it, and no one was giving him any any reinforcement. Mm-hmm. It's just like, and now he gets off the boat, and the first thing he does is, like, keep acting like an asshole, you know? I yeah. Know. And I think Robert Jordan sort of has an idea that some people are just awful jerks, yeah. and those people are awful jerks all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, that, so this guy is just an awful jerk. <laughs> he is an awful jerk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, but, to his detriment. Like, it doesn't seem to be doing any, any right, favors yeah. anywhere. Because Jordan doesn't like them, so he has bad things happen to them in their in their the story. Like, you know, they're sleeping on deck and then somebody jumps onto them. <laughs> Stomps on his <laughs> Kicks head. Kicks them in the head. Uh, yeah, and so Gelb is telling everybody that they're associated with Trollocs, and that's freaking everybody out. So Tom says, no, 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 we got to go now. We can't We can't wait around. We can't wait for anybody. This is really bad. And they're they're making their escape. They're kind of trying to. He's Tom is really worried. He's worried about like the town turning on them or something because of this story. Uh, and he starts. He goes out, kind of scouting by himself, and hides the boys. They sneak out the back window of the inn. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess, I guess he's he's more concerned about Geld than I would be because, like, it seems like nobody wants to listen to this guy. But yeah, maybe just because of the the recent false dragon thing, there's there, the people are more sensitive about. Talk of dark friends or something. I don't know. Yeah, and the and the, we actually get a little bit of Tom backstory here because Matt, who is acting very suspicious, Sweet. like like not not like he's we should be suspicious of him, but he's suspicious of everybody around him. Like paranoid. Yeah, yeah. very paranoid. That's right. Uh, ask him why are you helping us? And Tom says, basically, he had a nephew, and the nephew got into trouble with Aes Sedai, and before Tom could come help him, it was too late. He was dead, uh, which is a little vague. 
but it explains why Tom. It explains totally why Tom is helping these peop- these uh, Rand and Matt because they're just like his nephew. They've gotten into some kind of trouble with Aes Sedai. Do you think the Do you think his nephew was gentled? That would be my guess. Yeah, because they say there's only one bad thing that the Aes Sedai do to men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We still don't know much about the gentling and, deal, but it, we know that it doesn't kill people in and of itself. Yeah. And remember, one of the things that Min saw on Tom was a man juggling fire, not Tom. Oh, that's right. I wonder if he was training his nephew to be a gleeman or something. I think, uh, well, my read on that is that that's his nephew and his nephew could channel. Sure, sure. So that was his nephew. His nephew was channeling magic. Do you think he was like a gleeman trainee who used magic to enhance his gleemaning? Yeah, that would be such a good gleam. Maybe. Right? I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Like, it, even if you weren't, like, a strong channeler, just, like, a little bit of nudging here and there could make you able to do some pretty interesting tricks, like mm. juggling balls of fire. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and Tom goes out. He does a little scouting for him, and he comes back, and uh, he leads them out into a crowded city square, and where they meet a mirror draw coming right across the, the city square, right, in, right through the crowd, straight towards them. That's really inconvenient. Yes, indeed. And everybody's just getting out of his Mirdral's way because he's scary as heck. I guess, yeah. I, I mean, like, I guess a vill- even a, a village, like, as big as Whitebridge wouldn't have much in the way of ways of dealing with a Mirdral. Yeah, especially if he just showed up in the middle of this market square. Yeah. Everybody's booking it. You know, I'd get out of there. Yeah. And, uh, and he freezes them with his gaze and he's coming towards them. Uh, and they're trying not to look at him because they don't want to get frozen, but they can't. And uh, Tom... Gives him, shoves him all his stuff, and tells him to run, and then he goes at the mirror draw himself. Yeah, go Tom. Yeah, one on one with the mirror draw, Gleeman versus Fade. Probably wouldn't go very well. I have bad feeling about Tom. In well, as Rand and Matt run away with the crowds, running away from the crazy crap happening in the square, they hear screams and they see blue light lighting up the the city, uh, and it's terrible. He screams at them to run. He screams at them to run, and then he's just screaming. And he tells them to get to Camelin to the Queen's Blessing Inn. Yeah. The Queen's Blessing Inn calls it out. And they they manage to stick with the crowds and get outside Camelin. The guards aren't the guards are just looking at the crowds. They don't they're not even looking for them. Get outside Whitebridge. Sorry, whoops, yeah. They manage to get outside Whitebridge and the guards are not even looking for them. So they, they walk right past them. Uh, and I think this confirms that Tom is the Gandalf character. Oh yeah. Because he sacrifices. Fly you fools. Run, you fools. Fly you fools. Fly you fools. Yes, exactly. Uh, he says, you shall not pass, and then there's a flash of blue light, and, and yeah, he disappears. Probably dead. Yeah, he's certainly dead, right? Yeah, absolutely Just dead. like Gandalf was dead. Just like Gandalf was dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So that's the end of this chapter, and that's the end of uh, Tom, apparently, which is very sad. I know. He, Tom he, was, he was pretty great. And I think, yeah. you know, he was, I think he was doing a pretty solid job of making sure these two guys were staying out of trouble. Like, they probably would have died a few times already if Tom yeah. hadn't been around. Yeah, definitely. They're dumb. Yeah. They're, and they're really bad at, like, doing anything. Yeah, he, yeah Tom seemed to, to basically know what was going on, and he seemed to make good decisions. And he had a lot of valuable skills, like throwing knives. Yeah, really, yeah. Just whenever, he was a man, man for all seasons. Mm-hmm. Plus, he was teaching them uh, something to live on, some skills. Yeah, life yeah, skills. that's right. Like Gleeman skills. That's you true, know? right? And that's a way better skill set than just farming sheep. Yeah, I have to say, if I lived in this world, I would 100% become a Gleeman. If all you have to do is me- learn how to play an instrument well enough and memorize yeah. a few poems, that sounds great. That'd yeah, be a doesn't... great life. Everybody wants you around. You don't have to pay for food or Absolutely. Drink. Yeah. Uh, there might be downsides. You know, they, 
They might be occasional mobs with pitchforks or whatever chasing you around. <laughs> Against the Gleeman, really? Because it seems well, like even just... in the Two Rivers, they were totally, they were yeah. all about the Gleeman. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, the, the traveling people uh, previously said that even Gleeman could cross the waste or something like that, right? Some of the few people who actually could get across this. Yeah, they did. I think, I think yeah, maybe it is just great to be a Gleeman. So why aren't there Gleeman on every corner? I mean, instruments are expensive, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard. It takes time and energy to learn how to do it, though. I mean, I don't know how long this boat trip was, but. Randy and Matt learned a lot of Gleeman skills in that short amount of time. <laughs> it makes me think that people have low standards for Gleeman. Well, if Randy and Matt are able to to make some money doing that, yeah. So that leads us to chapter twenty-seven: Shelter from the Storm. We have that leaf again. Yeah the the leaf the pretty leaf. Yeah. Perrin, Egwene, and Elias are traveling with the Tuatha on, and they're going really, really slowly. Where they've been going really fast up to this point, but the the tinkers, they don't care. They'll, they'll get there when they get there. And Elias seems okay with it, which is weird because he was he was like kind of pushing them before, right? Yeah, I think maybe he just maybe he doesn't have to hunt for everybody. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> or maybe he feels safer with them. Well, I mean, they they are pacifists, but they they seem to know their way around, and people seem to like leave them alone for the most part. Yeah, I guess they don't have much to take, but. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he maybe, said something. Maybe it's good camouflage. Yeah, time. that's a good point. Yeah. So they're they're traveling along, and uh, Elias and the Tinkers. They, it's weird. It's weird that they're friends because they really don't seem to like each other. Like Elias is kind of contemptuous of them, and the Tinkers are are worried that because he's like a killer and a, and a wolf brother, and it's like an uneasy alliance. Yeah, but he's. I don't. I can't tell if Elias is taking advantage of them. You know, because they, they clearly are not on the same side, and I don't think he's very useful to them. But they're pacifists, and they don't turn anybody away. Mm. I, I get the impression that they must have a history or something. The the way that they they have these kind of weird, halting conversations, as if there's something hidden. I wonder if, if Elias, if there's more to Elias' relationship with the travelers yeah. than we are... Yeah. Well, he, ...that we're revealed. Yeah. He, he doesn't have a... Elias doesn't like them very much, but he has a... He has a sense that they should stay with the Tuatha'an. Yeah. And so Elias seems to do a lot with his senses. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does have like, you know... He's, he's a real sensor. Thousands of years of wolf <laughs> history in his head. I guess so, like, yeah, like a million years of wolf history, however long, yeah. since the first day. Right. And the, the Tinker... So we get to see a lot about the, the way the Tinkers live, and it's kind of idyllic. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It is. They, they don't travel very hard. They... They camp whenever they feel like it, sometimes in the afternoon, whenever they find a spot. There's always music playing. Always dancing. Yeah, always dancing. How do they get food? I get, like, they're vegetarian. They yeah, but still, I mean, like, they're... Forage along the way. Is that what it is? Are they foraging? Cause they're, like locusts. Because <laughs> they they eat a lot of vegetables and things like that, but, I mean, those are things you have to, like, stop and grow, usually, you know? It's true, yeah. In, in this, this very area, Perrin and Egwene were having... We're having trouble finding stuff to eat, even if they, and they were willing to eat meat. Yeah. But maybe they just have a lot of stores. Maybe they're they're really good at preparing, planning. Yeah. And they talk about baking bread, so maybe they have a part of the year when they harvest. Mm. and. Oh, do they, do they have an oven on wheels? That's Yeah, they do. They actually describe it. She's, huh? Yeah, uh, in, in the previous uh, chapter when they were first arriving in the camp, she they say that she has like a little oven set up up against the coals. Like, it's just... It seems oh. to, think, to be a thing she just kind of shoves into the fire, which I thought okay. was kind of cool. Yeah. And a little portable oven, yeah. There's a word for that. So, yeah, they're, they're traveling. It's fantastic. Perrin and Egwene are kind of 
I think they're, they're like seduced by this lifestyle and it, and Perrin understands why the, why Elias had his little bit of argument with Ryan because they don't, Ryan doesn't have to steal people's babies away. When people get a taste of this lifestyle, they, they, a lot of them want to just leave with the tinkers themselves. It does seem pretty low stress. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're, if you grow up on a farm working hard every day and then you meet these people who just like spend most of their day, you know, smoking tobacco and dancing and playing music, <laughs> that's not pretty. Yeah, right. And I wonder if that's a reflection of the time that Robert Jordan was coming from, the the pacifists who are and the hippies who are pushing back against the Vietnam War. And it there seems that was like a, it. yeah, yeah right? you hear about commune living. It really felt a lot like that actually. When, yeah. in, when I was reading it, that's what I was the sense he, I got. Uh, Robert Jordan did two tours in Vietnam, I believe. And so I would have just based on that, I would have pegged him on somebody that was not a big fan of hippies. But he certainly portrays their lifestyle as wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, Although he he does sort of he, he does seem to buy into, like, the dichotomy that there need to be badass dudes protecting all these peaceful people. Yeah, it's kind of what we talked about in, in the last episode. It's, it's, he definitely seems to be pre- presenting a pair of ideologies, but I can't tell which one he favors. Except mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah, it, it yeah. Does, it, he was a soldier. So, I mean, maybe maybe that kind of turned him against the, the idea of violence. Or maybe it's just the kind of thing where he's, he thinks that people like him make it okay for people to live a life like this. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and one th- important thing that happens is that the the ladies of the Tuatha An do a sexy dance for Perrin, <laughs> which makes him really uncomfortable. And since he's so uncomfortable, they decide to do it for him every night. <laughs> it, it's a little gross. I actually, my comment next to it is gag me. Um, <laughs> the description here, because as we will find out later, sexy dancing is not something that goes away in the Wheel of Time series. Um, and then just... Here's here a uh, fun part here. The dancing girls laughed softly. Beads clicked as they tossed their long hair on their shoulders, and he, Perrin, thought his face would burn up. Then a slightly older woman joined the girls to show them how it was done. With a groan, he gave up altogether and shut his eyes. Even behind his eyelids, their laughter taunted and tickled. Even behind his eyelids, he could still see them. Sweat beaded on his forehead, and he wished for the wind. <laughs> so Perrin is super, super into this dancing. Yeah, he is. The like, young ladies, the older ladies. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, my. my Listen, oh my. my collar. <laughs> yeah, that's... I. Yeah, I, I don't know why he's reacting this way. I think Robert Jordan just had a little bit of a dancing girl fetish. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, 100%. So, so this is just like... We're seeing, like, his his ultimate, like, dream fantasy, like, Probably. oh, what if I were this guy just, like, sitting here and these yeah. girls were just, like, and then teasing I, me and dancing. And then, then I looked away and then they, they danced into my vision again. <laughs> <laughs> but Perrin, Perrin is, like, super unchill. Like, he cannot handle this. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I would be uncomfortable cool. in that situation, too. But, I mean, I, I would look, right? I mean. Right, I mean, it, it feels awkward to me. It's 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 made more awkward by the fact that he's making such a thing about it, right? Yeah. So yeah. if he just like could keep his chill, and then they, it they, be they weird. decide to like ignore his boundaries, <laughs> <laughs> and they do it. Apparently, they only do it very much, but because of his because he blushed, they start doing it every night. Blushed and groaned. Don't forget, blushed, groaned, <laughs> close his eyes. <laughs> yeah. If you try and picture this, is like a really uncomfortable moment for everyone else. It's like. <laughs> And it gets <laughs> even weirder because Egwene starts learning the sexy dance too. That's yes, right. She steps in with it. Egwene, who he loves like a sister. Uh, Egwene is, is super into the Tinker lifestyle, though. She's spending all of her time with Aram, 
and she he, she always wears these nice beads that Aram gave her, and she's always chitty chatting with with the grandmotherly woman Ila. Yeah, they spend a lot of time. I, I gotta yeah. say, Aram kind of grosses me out a little. He's he's always there. He's always watching her. He's very very possessive. Yeah, he's always whenever she like decides to hang out with him, he always gives like a triumphant look to Perrin, like look, I got her. Yeah. Yeah. He's always around, just watching. Yeah, he's kind of creepy, isn't he? He is. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, for one reason or another, Egwene seems to take with him. Maybe maybe it's not him so much as just, like, having, like, an in with the, the traveling people. You know, because this guy is is attached to her, she is immersed in the, the culture that's, that seems kind of interesting around, around them. I don't know. Or maybe, and I guess he's good looking. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I think he is good looking. Uh, I think he's described that way. Yeah, and uh, Perrin is, but Perrin is worried because he's worried that Trollocs and Myrdral are going to come and kill all these people, which I think is a pretty reasonable worry, because that's what's happened to like everybody else that he's hung out with. Mm-hmm. And the the Tinkers also make like a kind of a point about they don't like his axe. There's actually this scene where the, the grandmotherly woman gives him a cloak. Thank God he's got a cloak again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was worried. It's a big yeah. green cloak. You know, to, oh, to show that he's changed in his life. Yeah, yeah. As as other people meet him, they're probably going to like look at that green cloak and be like, oh, see what kind of guy this is. Cloak. And, that person has been in the nature. Even though he's totally looking a gift cloak in the mouth, because <laughs> what they this this grandmotherly woman who has been feeding and sheltering him this whole time gives him a cloak, and he's like. Oh, I'm so glad it's not one of your ugly, bright colors. Thank God <laughs> it's right. just green, which is such a dick thought to have. Right? Just say thank you. If she had given him a bright yellow cloak, I hope he would have been just as polite. Exactly. <laughs> these, I don't know. These people from Emmons Field are kind of puritanical. They, yeah. they, they don't they don't accept other people's cultures very well. They have they have a very rigid idea of how people should live. It's True. their stubbornness, I guess, right? Is it, mm-hmm. At the root, they're just like, we do our, th- our, our things a certain way and we don't change the way we I, do our I things. I think it's of a piece with the dancing girls. You know, he's like, you know, people shouldn't wear bright clothes like that and women shouldn't dance all sexy, you know, because that's, that's not how we do things back home. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're supposed to represent the culture clash that was happening at that time with the during Vietnam War with the mm-hmm. middle-aged parents and the hippie kids who are trying to resist against it. And these parents who sure. grew up, who were living and coming of age in the uh, 50s. And his name and is much... Parent? Like Parent? His name is oh. Parent. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I, I, I tend to think that any any strong opinions represent, uh, are, are uh, of the Emmons Fielders are uh, Robert Jordan. Like, I think that he, he wrote them to, to kind of more or less reflect the way he wanted to be. Well, yeah, but, but Perrin disapproves of his lifestyle, but it doesn't seem like Robert Jordan himself disapproves of his lifestyle. Well, Perrin sort of disapproves. He, he sees the appeal. Like, he looks at them and he thinks, you know, I can see why this, I think it actually says, Elias is right. They don't have to try to convert you. It seeps into you just by being around them. He sees the appeal. But he also says, but there are, there are Trollocs and Fades in the world, you know? And I mm-hmm. think that could be Robert Jordan. He's like, yeah, that looks great. I would love to do that, but... I have all this responsibility that makes it okay for you to do that thing. Yeah, right. I see. I see the Evans Fielders as kind of representing middle class American values at that time, and then you have these crazy commune Tuathan people off doing their thing in essentially California, <laughs> um, and then you have the unwilling soldiers, which is all these young people mm. who are traveling. Interesting. Those yeah. are the parallels I would make. Yeah, I can buy that. So while this is going on, Perrin can sense the wolves. So he's totally a wolf bro, hundred percent. The, there's no no getting rid of them. He's not making a thing about it, but yeah, it's it's clearly it's clear he's kind of yeah. I don't is he is he would you say he's fighting it or would you say he's just kind of like 
accepting it. He's always thinking like, oh, I wish the, I wish it would go away. I don't want it to be this way. I want to go back to the old days when I couldn't sense wolves and be cool and awesome like I am now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it seems like the most obvious, this is a, an objectively useful thing. You know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem like it has many downsides. Except- yeah, so far, it's not even like, so, yeah, so far there's no indication externally that it exists. So it's not even a problem. Right. So it's just it's just an advantage, and the wolves are really nice. Like they're really into him and very helpful. Yeah, but he's he's being kind of a he's being kind of a stick in the mud about it. We learn a little bit about Wind and Hopper, which are two of the wolves. The wolves don't come into the to the what camp. you call it to the camp yeah. or the traveling caravan. Uh, but yeah, we get to know some of the wolves. That's pretty cool. Uh, and there comes a turning point though, where Perrin has a dream where Baalzaman finally finds him. And the balls, the Perrin is having these wolves guarding his dreams, like he has been. But Balsamon shows up and fries the wolf with fire. Yeah, which is sucks. Yeah, uh, and Perrin wakes up in the night or the early morning, and wolves are out there howling because I think they knew they sensed his dream, and uh, it is time to go. Yep. Yeah. Whatever we were waiting for, apparently that was it. So yeah. You you wonder? I like I I kind of wonder because Elias at that point is like, now we have to go. I I wonder what his what to what degree. He's aware of what's going on. Well, it seems like Elias and Perrin share the same visions and maybe not dreams, but they are on the same wavelength. They definitely share share their communication with wolves, but I don't know. I I wonder if Elias has any, can can sense anything about Perrin. Hmm, Interesting. Uh, I, I get the yeah. impression the answer is no, but then stuff like that happens, and I'm like, well, maybe maybe there's something maybe. there. And, yeah. the, and he knew in the first place. He recognized Perrin in the first place as having wolf sense or whatever it is. Yeah, I I think maybe the the wolves all share all their thoughts and the wolves knew. So Elias is just picking up a lot of what the wolves uh, are getting from Perrin. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. So even if he can't read Perrin directly, the yeah. wolves have a kind of a shared consciousness thing, which means there's probably some bleed over. Yeah. So that's that's what I think. But anyway, Elias is is up and he's freaked out so cuz he's freaked out cuz the wolves are freaked out and Ryan the uh, the leader or the sort of leader-ish figure of the Tuatha'an, comes out looking all bleary-eyed, and he looks up at the sky and drops what he's what he's thinking and stops. And after looking up at the sky for a while, says, we've got to change direction and go a different way. And uh, and that, that works out fine because Perrin and, and Egwene and Elias are about to book it anyway. Do, do you think Ryan has any extrasensory powers of any sort? It seems like... He's, he's looking at something. He sees something in the sky, which is interesting because we don't actually find out what's what's coming down on them for a while now. Yeah. And Ryan didn't... He would have told him if he knew what actually was about to happen. Yeah. He just sees something wrong in the clouds. And I, I, I don't know if it's some kind of shamanistic thing or or what. It can't be one power because, you know, we know what would happen with that, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So... But it's, I don't know, maybe because he's one with nature and he communes with the sky or something like that. He definitely seems to be able to de- detect that something has changed and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, he, and he, he detects it and he says, we're just going to change directions. So he knows that they're not going to keep going the direction they were. And they have a big ceremony when Perrin, Egwene, and Elias uh, leave, which is apparently what they do. They, they have ceremonies when people join them and ceremonies when people leave, which is pretty cool. Uh, Elias actually participates in the ceremony, which surprises everybody because Elias is kind of a jerk to these people. Hmm. Uh, but he's like, "Oh, whatever, you know, why not?" Yeah, it doesn't cost me anything. It makes them happy, whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I still think it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but but again, this, the, he knows this this he knows the ceremony, which makes me again wonder if there's more to this like connection than than we are led to believe. Yeah. You know? uh, oh yeah, I wanted to point out that the the wolves call uh, the devil, the dark one, Heartfang. 
Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. cool. That's, that's a pretty sweet name. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mean. I mean, I, it's not a bad name. I wouldn't mind be calling it Heartfang. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, right. I mean, you guys can call me Heartfang from now on if you want. All right. <laughs> they also they do also mention that, uh, or was it Ryan? I think mentions that they're going to try and find a steading, and then there, there's some talk about steadings and ogiers, which we don't really know much about yet. Yeah, but they, you know, said, Elias says trouble never enters enters a steading. Mm. Uh, but the Ogiers are none too open to strangers. Yeah, and Egwene is, is happy to leave Aram behind, which uh, Perrin is a bit surprised by. He thought she might be seduced by the by the the lifestyle. She definitely seemed to like it. Yeah, I think she was just I think she was just sampling the lifestyle. You know, I don't think she was really going to be a, ever a convert. Yeah, uh, and uh, and she. The parent asked her at one point what she was whispering with, with Ela, the grandmotherly woman. And she was like, oh, you know, she was telling me how to be a woman. And parent's like, well, no one tells us how to be men. We just do it. And she's like, well, that's why you're so bad at it. <laughs> right. That was a very Robert Jordan-esque. What? Okay. So you, Alice, are a woman. Okay. So what do you, what, sure. what do you think Ela was telling Egwene? <laughs> like, I don't know, periods and stuff? <laughs> I well, know. I mean, I imagine she's already getting her period. Yeah. I don't know. Like, there's this idea of sisterhood that persists throughout the entire thing. You have the Aes Sedai, who are, they call each other the sisters, but I guess there's this idea that all the women are supposed to bond together. <laughs> I don't, I don't. All women know each other. I don't know. I'm starting to feel like there's a little bit of tokenism going on in this podcast. <laughs> Not really. Alice, speak for women here. I will, I will. Can you tell us what women think about this? All women? Oh, God, I don't know. Flower arranging? <laughs> you know, it, Shoe shopping? Honestly, given what's going on here, I think it's sex stuff. I think it's like, look, Aram is, you know, clearly interested in you, but, you know. Is that, isn't that like one convo, though? Well, I mean... There's and, and it's not like that guy is, is a, a deep-flowing river. You know, you can read him. Like, we knew exactly what he was after there, when he showed com- up. There's complexity there. It's like, you know... I, I mean, from Robert, Robert Jordan's perspective, I'm sure there's like a storied history of women and seducing men and like the right way to talk to guys and all... You know, I'm sure... That's that's the impression I get. It's like, women all talk in a certain way and like this is this is how they learn it i don't know that's that's all i can read that's all i can think joking aside i think she was probably teaching her things like how to present yourself in public how to i mean for lack of a better word manipulate people so that is okay manipulate men so that you can get your way um just the way Hmm. how deportment how you should be acting as an adult woman right because i mean it could be that well, okay, so she had just, going back to Emmonsfield, she had just gotten her hair in her braid, right? So sure. she probably wasn't treated as a woman yet in Emmonsfield, so maybe she hasn't had those kinds of conversations yeah, yet. Yeah, learning how to deal with potential suitors, learning how to get your way. <laughs> how to say no. <laughs> yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a weird, it's definitely a weird thing, but it, and again, it feels like kind of a Robert Jordan's subtle, but... Uh, entirely unintentional, I'm sure, but kind of sexism. Like, oh yeah, this is this is how women get to be women, I guess. Because yeah, because the women women are very secretive. I feel like in Robert Jordan's world. Yeah, yeah. There's like, yeah. well, I mean, absolutely. Because I, I I remember there's all the, well, there's all the women's circle stuff, and whenever there's women's circle stuff, there's uh, there's this. I'm trying to think. Parents says something like they were talking in a way that made it very clear that men weren't allowed or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert Jordan says stuff like that all the time. And this is the same kind of thing, which is just his, like, 
he has this imagined like secret society of womanhood that's that's happening. I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, it feels very much like a cats and dogs thing. Women are the cats. They're they're smarter than the guys, but they're also more secretive and they're kind of mysterious, kind of standoffish. Yeah. Meanwhile, guys are just kind of doofuses. What you see is what you get. You know, I was just thinking we we do see a lot of conversations between men. You know, men talk. Yeah. And they never talk about women in this in the series. You know, Perfect. they they never talk about like this is how you. This is how you deal with people of the opposite sex. They never talk about anything that you wouldn't have a conversation with a woman. That's a good point. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of like Matt and Rand being like, "So how are things going with the Gwen?" Oh, they're not going great, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. which is a conversation a guy could have. Well, I I think a conversation a guy could have. I don't know. Yeah, not so, very manly. Yeah, they don't really talk about their so, feelings. So if it if it is like a counterpart thing, like like a separate but equal thing, then. I don't see the other the other side of that equation happening. Well, maybe Robert Jordan's point is like, he doesn't know, right? I mean, because he's a man. He wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they say. They teach him how to be women, but advice, nobody tells us how to be men. We just are. <laughs> it's such a weird statement. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Girl talk is stupid. <laughs> it is a weird little conversation back yeah. and forth there. But very Jordan-esque. Right. So why do you think uh, why do you think Egwene leaves? Because she really does seem to be having a good time there. What do you think it is that, that, that you know... I think... Well, she is young. She's a teenager. And teenagers try on different lifestyles. And I think that's all she was doing. Yeah. She was immersing herself in it kind of like a tourist. Yeah. Which is... Nothing wrong with that. But she, I think she it didn't change her mind that she wants to go to Tarvalon and be a nice guy. She's still got a lot of ambition. Yeah. yeah. It's like your freshman year of college. You try a bunch of different stuff out. Do some experimenting. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't necessarily change your major. But also, I mean, she is... Sleep she, on top of the covers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, try new things. <laughs> okay. Eat your dessert before you eat the the meat, the meal. You had a very tame freshman year. <laughs> I got crazy. Are you kidding? That's just a list. That's like the first two of the four things that I did. <laughs> eat, eating year. dessert first and sleeping on top of the covers. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, not at the same time. That's, I mean, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, we gotta, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's roll it back a little bit. One or the other. <laughs> Uh, but also, uh, I mean, we have to keep in mind that, you know, three quarters of the people that she left town with are still missing. So I guess that's probably part of it, too. Yeah. She wants to find out what happened to Rand. She wants to find out what happened to Matt. Yeah. So uh, Baron Egwene and Elias take off, and we get to our next chapter. It's chapter 28, Footprints in Air. And there's a, the image is a staff. Air, so, A-I-R, not air as in mistake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well... It's probably not a pun, right? No, I don't think so. Oh. I was just <laughs> clarifying for our for our gentle listeners. There, yes. and it's the wisdom stick is what we called it. We decided to sign up, right? It's the wisdom stick. Yeah, when you need to beat some wisdom into somebody. <laughs> right. So this is a naive chapter. Oh boy. Oh god, man. She is not getting. Okay. She's not getting better. Like, like I have trouble with her. I really have trouble with naive. Yeah, and you know, naive, right? Wouldn't naive be in charge of telling Egwene like secret woman stuff? You would think so, yeah. right? But she's not there, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Nynaeve, Moraine, and Lan have reached Whitebridge uh, after a really unpleasant journey where Nynaeve apparently just... What would you say? Just badger? Just heckled everybody? She's, like, unreasonably stubborn and irritating. Like, she just, like... Yeah, she's... She's just a, a, a terrible traveling companion. Yeah, she, she says she shouts at Moraine sometimes and Moraine ignores it and asks her a lot of pointed questions and Moraine just ignores it. Because Moraine is, is like a saint. <laughs> and uh, they're, But they're all worried and really stressed out because uh, all the, the young people that they were supposed to be taking care of are not around. And they, they get to Whitebridge, and when they get to Whitebridge, 
a bunch of the buildings have been burnt down. Something really bad has happened here, and no one will talk about it. Yeah. Which is really weird. They ask what happened, and they're like, everything's fine, <laughs> even though a bunch of things were burned down. Somebody tells them, like, a fire caught in, in some, like, dry wood or something, but none of the buildings are next to each other. So there's something, yeah, it's, it's confusing. And uh, they don't find any of the people they're looking for. Uh, they do. We do get a little hint that the, the the ship got away, but the townsfolk blame something evil that came down river on the ship. So the the ship was. It sounds like the ship was chased out of town essentially. Yeah. So that that's that's why Tom wanted to get away as soon as he saw Flora and Gel going around spent, uh, spreading rumors because that's exactly what happened. Is that the town rose up and was was after them, which is that's. Strange. So I guess Florin Geld in, it did finally convince some people after the fate nuked yeah. the center of their town. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I assume, what happened. I mean, we, we don't really know, but... Yeah, so we don't, like... they don't get any information, but uh, but Lan smells half-man <laughs> everywhere. No. So he knows that a fate was there. And uh, Moraine is able to sense somehow that the that Rand and Matt were in one of the inns that they go into. Yeah. So they were alive at that point. And, Which I uh, guess I guess reassures her somehow. It seems to change her strategy a little bit because previously she was going down river to, to track down yeah, Rain and Matt, two. but she's like, "Oh, okay, they got this far. Yeah, Let, let's change tracks, right?" And if there was, and if there were, you know, if they had been chopped up and they were laying in the streets, they probably would have seen him. Well, up until this very moment, she's been they've been after Rain and Matt, and she was saying, "We'll go after Perrin later, right?" And it's at this yeah. moment that she changes her, her mind, yeah. I guess, her strategy, her approach. Yeah, which means, and I guess it's good because they got off the boat. She knows they got off the boat and they had, they're headed to Camelin. Right. So she does change the strategy. But but before that happens, a militia man comes in and hassles them uh, and is and is trying to hassle them. But Lan just stares him down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what this what his face looks like in something like this. It, it's, apparently it's, he just, I, I, <laughs> I wrote in quotes in my note, his eyes were, so cold. <laughs> <laughs> what is cold? What do cold eyes look like? And now is the portion of the podcast where we give Jeff thirty seconds to extrapolate on his love for land. <laughs> his so man cool. crush. Yeah, t- tell us about land, Jeff. Yeah, Please. how do you feel about land? I think that the harsh, angular, stony planes of his face are the coolest <laughs> angular planes of anybody's face ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he, apparently he can stare down a guardsman without even. Yeah, saying the a word. guardsman comes over and is giving him crap, and land is just like, "We're leaving as soon as I finish my ale." <laughs> and just takes a slow sip. Doesn't even yeah. doesn't rush it. Yeah, yeah. And, and and just Not eyeballs eye the contact. guy. Yeah, and the guy's about to like say more, but then those cold eyes <laughs> backs off. He shivers as if a cold cold breeze went down his spine or something. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, because because Land is the coolest cool that ever. Yeah, been. he's the badassest badass that ever badassed in Badass Town. <laughs> yeah, luckily then, they're far from Badass Town. <laughs> and they're in today's podcast. Uh, <laughs> section where Jeff expresses his love for land. <laughs> the end. Tune in next week. You know, it's all there in the text. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, like I said, uh, Moraine decides that she's going to go after Perrin because it seems like Rand and Matt are doing okay. Well, it's because it, it was a guaranteed thing because she doesn't have, because she knows that Matt and Rand don't have their tokens oh, she's anymore. Lost her, that's right. Yeah, she's lost them, so she says... We don't know where they've gone. They we they passed here a couple days ago, but we don't know what direction they went. We don't know how fast they're traveling. They could be forty miles in any direction by now. So she's saying we're a hopeful. Eventually, they're going to remember Camelin. So let's go after the other guy, which is going to be Perrin, because he still has his token. Yeah, he's yeah we know down. where he is, and we know where they're going. So she's feeling better about everything. Yeah, right. Uh, and so they head off, and that's uh, that's it for this chapter. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Done with 90 for a little bit. Yeah. 
So there's chapter 29, Eyes Without Pity. And there's a, a picture of a wolf. So uh, Elias leads Perrin and Aguin south, and they are sort of rushing while sneaking in this really uh, arduous way. They're going as fast as they can, but they're going around hills, and they're only going over ridges when they have to, and Elias is really agitated because there's something going on, and they don't know exactly what's going on. He doesn't they, tell them much, but he's driving them. Like, yeah, he's really. driving them hard. I don't think he knows. It's mostly instinct. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're something, yeah. They're, they're heading south. They're heading through empty country. And, let's see. Well, you know, they're, they're going over these hills, and then at one point, they, they find out, or I guess... Yeah. They determine what it is that Elias is yeah, when they're, of. When they're forced to go over a hill, then Elias sneaks up to it. And at one point, Perrin sneaks up with Elias. And they see they see nothing. They see open hills, and they see some, some groves of trees. And then a fox bursts from one of the groves of trees and runs. And this giant flock of ravens comes out of the trees and hunts down the fox. Yeah, they, got like an Alfred Hitchcock moment. Yeah, it's it it a nightmare. They, they swarm around the fox with stabbing beaks. And, and when they're done, there's just a, like a scrap of bloody fur. Uh, that seems pretty bad. Yeah, it's kind of like a, 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 kind of a creepy, gross kind of moment. Yeah, mm. yeah and the, the wolves didn't see this. Uh, because Elias says, wolves don't look up much. So the wolves have been scouting around back and forth, but they didn't see anything in the sky. So yeah, and and, uh, and then the, after they've after the ravens have killed the wolf, they they pit, take off, and then they all change directions and head south as though there were one mind directing them. And they see uh, Perrin and Elias see a couple other giant flocks of ravens too, uh, off in the distance, and they're they're like moving around in a pattern, searching for something. And we know at this point from from previous. Things that uh, that the ravens are agents of the dark one. That, so these are clearly not your average ravens. These are like possessed evil ravens. I yeah, murdery yeah. ravens. Yeah, murder yeah. ravens. There's a murder of ravens, as they say. Yeah. And <laughs> well, I'm wondering now because I know it's a I know it's a murder of crows. So what are ravens? Is it a flock of ravens? Uh, I think it's, it's like a, a, parliament a parliament or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know who makes those who makes the rules for those things. But, <laughs> yeah. but in this particular instance, murder is more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. For these ravens. Because they're murder ravens. So now they know what's hunting them, these flocks of murder ravens. And uh, Elias decides that instead of heading south, we're going to head for a safe place that I know nearby. But they have to avoid these ravens. And so now it, it gets even worse. They have to rush from cover to cover and peek around and, and try not to get seen. And they're actually moving behind these flocks of ravens. So if any of them turn around and look, they'll, they'll be busted and they'll be dead. And it's awful. Yeah, pretty miserable way to go, it sounds like, being picked apart by ravens. Yeah, and uh, the ravens attack the wolves at one point, mm. uh, which the wolves are not as easy to kill as a fox. Uh, and so the, the ravens leave them alone eventually, but the wolves get really injured, get all torn up, and it's it's pretty bad. I think they said, was it Hopper gets one of his eyes kind of messed up? Yeah, which is so sad. I know. I like I, those wolves. I know, me too. I was like, man, come on, get, get it together, wolves, hide. Yeah. But during this point, uh, Perrin, or... The parent is forced by Elias because Elias isn't isn't telling Egwene about that. Uh, parent is forced to admit that he can hear the wolf's thoughts, and that's what's going on. So apparently, Egwene. Well, I, I, I mean, think it's the first time he said it. Parent has said it out loud that he can hear the the wolves. Yeah, so it's possible that up to this point, Egwene didn't re- didn't realize to what degree something was going on here. Yeah. I think she may have suspected. There were a couple of like hints, but it's the first time he's outright said, "Yeah, I can hear what the yeah. wolves are." So it's, this is super awful. Uh, they're they're traveling. They're racing from cover to cover, and they don't know if they're going to make it to safety. And Perrin is, at one point, decides basically that he's going to have to 
use his axe to kill Egwene before the birds get to them. Because that's a better way to die than be pecked to death by these horrible ravens. Yeah, he gets a message from the wolves that basically they have about an hour. And he's like, there's no way we're going to make it to wherever we're going in mm-hmm. time. So, yeah, he's ready. He's like, Yeah, which uh, that's, that's pretty hardcore for a, a blacksmith princess. Yeah. And this is this whole scene, I thought, is, is, is really scary. Yeah, you know? it is. Like, I wonder why they didn't send these ravens in the first place. That is a good question. I mean, like, they seem to be very effective, and they would have been very effective in any situation other than this one. You know, I mean, now they have scouts. If this had happened earlier, well, I guess more if Moraine was around, she probably could have dealt with them pretty effectively. Or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe this is the first time that Moraine hasn't been around to protect them from... Because she, she controls air, right? That's one of her... Air and water, I think, were her strong elements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's so, an airbender. Yeah, she's an air. <laughs> so maybe a bunch of ravens would have just been like out of luck if she had. Yeah. But they do finally, at the last minute, make it to a steading, which is the the safe place that Elias was talking about. And uh, Ryan, the, the traveler, the, the tinker, mentioned steadings earlier, but they feel it when they go into it. Like it, it takes the edge off their aches and, and it's like kind of like going into a cold pool. Yeah, and Egwene says, I feel like something's been taken from me, or I feel right. like I've left something, or lost something. Yeah, because you can't touch the one power when That's you're right. studying. It's fascinating. Yeah. And when when uh, I said I yeah. go into steadings, they have essentially the DTs, the, yeah, like they're <laughs> the withdrawing, yeah, yeah, the shivers. And... Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, Elias says, I said I will never go into a steading unless they have to, they hate it. Yeah, interesting. But likewise, Trollocs and Miradral, Ages of the Dark One, also won't go in there, which is why... Mm-hmm. They're they're safe, you know. Only, only normal ravens, I guess, would come in, not the murder ravens. Yeah, uh, at least again, not not unless they were driven by something mm-hmm. severe. Yeah. Well, I thought, I want to point out. Egwene says that she feels as if she lost something, but um, Perrin says too. Not only does it seem like it's taking away a little bit of his fatigue and his ache, it left behind dot 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 something. He could not say what. Only he felt different. Yeah. So I'm curious if he's got a little bit of the one power, too, if that's a very subtle mm. nod towards that. Yeah we, yeah, we don't know what a normal person would feel like going through this. So, yeah, it's, it's possible. Yeah, sure. It's very possible. Yeah, I, th- I think this this is another one of those things that I think is really fascinating because you have these things called the steading that have all these properties. But it seems like no one really knows why or how they are or what where they came from. It's just a thing. You know, this, this yeah. place exists where this one power doesn't work and... Sometime Ogier like to hang out there. We don't know what those are or who they are, but I think I think he says that this particular setting doesn't have an Ogier, and but he says something funny like the the Ogier don't make the setting, the setting makes the Ogier or something like that. I don't know. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, it, the world is just full of these of interesting, fantastical stuff, and sometimes it matters like this setting is a safe place, safe place, and sometimes. You just sail by it on your boat, and you say, oh, there's that mysterious tower. Yeah. <laughs> or, or those statues of ancient kings and queens. Uh, yeah. yeah, right? But uh, I don't care. i got to get these bags of wool downstream. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's that's cool. Yep. So they, they camp by a spring that there is in the steading, and uh, they, they realize as they're camping that this giant boulder, this, there's all these boulders around, but this giant one has an eye carved on it, a giant eye. And Elias tells them a little bit of history, that this statue used to be a statue of Arthur Hawkwing. Yeah. And this statue was built where the, he was going to build his capital city, uh, at the very center of this of the areas he governed, and, you know, separate from any any country. So, like, a Washington, D.C. thing, where it's not part of any state. 
And also, it, it, it was intentional that it was in the setting because Arthur Hawkwing apparently hated Aes Sedai. Yeah. Arthur yeah. Hawkwing, the Arthur Pen, Tanriel Pendragon, Pendragon, what is it, right? Yeah. Arthur Tanriel Pendragon, Arthur Hawkwing. So it's, it's definitely kind of a King Arthur thing. Yeah. Uh, he united all the nations from the Great Blight to the Sea of Storms, from the Aerith Ocean to the Isle Waste, and even some beyond the Isle Waste. Yeah. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah. But and apparently he had a bounty on Aes Sedai, right? He did, yeah. He hated them so much. He laid a 20-year siege to Tar Valon, and then he had his, uh, forgive me, Steve Jobs moment. <laughs> because, and he gets sick or gets poisoned, but an Aes Sedai healer could have saved him, but he rejected that. Yeah, there were no Aes Sedai around at the time. It's, it's, it's also kind of interesting to imagine what kind of person he must have been to be able to lay siege to Tar Valon for 20 years. Because, I mean, like... You can you can see what one Aes Sedai could do. What kind of what must it take to to put Aes Sedai on their on their back feet? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, definitely an army. He said his 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 army. The campfires lit up the night like a second set of stars. Yeah. And if you'll remember, when Baalzaman was talking to Rand, he said he whispered in Arthur Hawkwing's ear, and uh, that's why he hated Aes Sedai so much. Mm. That's right. And yeah. That he he turned Arthur Hawkwing against the Aes Sedai. And that's something, he, at least he claimed, the Dark One, the father of lies, claimed that that's something he did. It was part of his, like, his grander scheme yeah. of, like, tearing apart the world of men. Yeah. But uh, after uniting everything, he he died, and he had no heirs, and so his... Uh, oh, he had several heirs, and they, I think it was, wasn't that what it is? Did he, he have sons? Yeah, it sounds like he had lots yeah, of kids, right. and they kind of picked apart his Well, yeah, I, was, I mistook, because I was, I was making a, in comparison in my head, to Alexander the Great. Oh, who yeah. Who died with no heirs, and his generals tore apart everything he had built and made their own little kingdoms out of it. Yeah, I actually had, had a, a really... Sons. Yeah, I had a similar uh, impression in my mind that he had, he was kind of an Alexander the Great sort of character. Yeah, but he had a bunch of sons, and they... But they fought each other, apparently. Whatever. His empire didn't last. Yeah. Uh, and it, it got torn apart by his successors. And into the nation symbolically, his statue also got torn apart. Oh, yeah. yeah it's a it, metaphor. They pulled it down. And uh, and so there's just these chunks. You know, it's, it's a very Ozymandias moment. You know, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. It was interesting when, uh, I think Egwene says, you know, sometimes it sounds like you didn't like this guy, but sometimes it sounds like you almost admire him. Because he, he talks about the fact that despite... Archer Hawkwing having making these really bad decisions. Everyone was really happy. Like he took, he really took care of yeah. the, the 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 common folk when he was. A- yeah, it was it was peaceful. He says that you know a, a a child with a bag of gold can walk from one end of his country to the other without any trouble, but anybody that did give him trouble was dead. He, yeah, he was like brutal to all of the people that might even consider being his enemies. Civis Romanus. Yeah, yeah. Do you uh, do you think that Robert Jordan liked the idea of Archer Hawkwing? I don't think... I think this is a historical thing. Yeah. I think he's borrowing from a lot of similar stories in real history to put together this history. Yeah. Uh, I think he's... I think his attitude is just that this is just the kind of thing that happened in ancient history. Mm-hmm. Which it totally did. Oh, yeah. For sure. The wheel... The wheel turns. There are no beginnings and end. Yeah. Everything that has come to pass will come Absolutely. to pass again. Yeah. And uh, Elias is... Uh, is pretty knowledgeable about his, knowledgeable about history for a crazy wild man. I was thinking the same thing. Is like, how, how does Elias know all this stuff? Like, he, like I've never. I mean, I assume that not, nobody knows this kind of thing except yeah. for maybe Gleeman. But yeah, I suspect there's more to Elias Machira than we know. <sighs> I think mm-hmm. you're probably right. Yeah, and especially since they say that a lot of books were burned for even mentioning Arthur Hawkwing, Hawkwing in them. Uh, after oh, that's after right. he that's died, right. yeah, that is a good point. which is why. What what you know? What people think of Arthur Hawkwing is all stories because mm-hmm. there aren't any histories. Interesting. 
So, that leads us to chapter 30, Children of Shadow. And there's a, a sunburst, uh, which is the sign of the Children of the Light. Oh, man, I hate these guys. Indeed, they boo. suck. Yeah, these guys are the worst. And not only do I hate these guys, but I think Robert Jordan hates these guys, too. Oh, yeah. And just the way he writes them, they're the worst. Yeah, no, I... I Again, you know, when I, when I read his writing, I get impressions of his of his uh, opinions, and I I get the idea that he has this thing about like religious zealotry or or people who are like strong strongly religious. Or it could be. I was wondering if it was echoes of McCarthyism. Oh, it could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're they're determined to find wrongdoing even where it doesn't exist. Yeah, people in power who are essentially just having a witch hunt. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that's one way to get powers, to this, find enemies and destroy them. In this case, a literal witch hunt, because they hunt uh, yeah. Sedai. Yeah. So, uh, Perrin is, is brooding by the pool. He's feeling bad because he considered killing Egwene with his axe. Super emo. He's like, yeah. oh, I thought about doing yeah. this thing. What How could I do that? What what have I become? Yeah. Which I think is a real overreaction. Yeah. That was a pretty... It was, it was a passing thought, and I, I'm not necessarily a bad one. I mean... Yeah. But Elias uh, reassures him and uh, gives him this advice, which I wrote down because I think this is this is very close to something Robert Jordan believes. I think this comes up over and over again when uh, throughout the series. Elias tells him about the axe. Uh, yeah, Perrin says, "You know, I hate this axe. I don't. I wish I didn't have it. Uh, I don't want to use it anymore." And uh, Elias says, "You'll use it, and as long as you hate using it, you'll use it more wisely than most men would." Wait. If ever you don't hate it any longer, then will be the time to throw it as far as you can and run the other way. Yeah. So this this idea that this is uh, this violence, this this fighting is just ugly work that's awful, but it has to be done, uh, is a, is an idea that I think Robert Jordan buys into wholesale. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think there's the idea that that or the idea of power and you know power gives you certain certain responsibilities and if you ever get to a point where you're you're in it just to have the power then you shouldn't have the power kind of thing yeah yeah and that people yeah people who want to do violence are the worst people yeah but but yeah so that's what elias tells him which i think reassures perrin but uh but before they can do anything they get a message from the wolves there are men on horses coming up on them and the men smell wrong there's something off about them yeah and so Elias kind of takes off, uh, but yeah, he just takes off into the darkness, and Perrin and Gwen are hiding. He tells them to go hide, right? Yeah, he tells them to go hide, and they go hide in a nearby rock, which when they get into it, they realize it's Arthur Hawkwing's hand. <laughs> They're it's, hiding in the Arthur Hawkwing's hand of yeah, justice. Yeah, his, his giant stone hand of justice, <laughs> uh, which doesn't do them very much good. Uh, and Perrin, there's an interesting thing that happens is that Perrin is able to find them a good hiding place really easily, even though it's pitch black outside. And Egwene's like, what are you looking at? I can't see anything. Yeah, Perrin he, realizes, he doesn't realize, yeah. Yeah, Perrin realizes when she says that, wait, the moon is down. There's the uh, there's no moon, there's no sun, I'm seeing in the dark. That's weird. <laughs> well, I'm not going to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. Not a big deal. Whatever. Yeah. And uh, as they get closer, they find out they're white cloaks, uh, are these men, and the men are searching for them. For some reason. That, yeah, right? There's, for some reason, they're searching. And they find them, because Perrin and Egwene are not very good at hiding. And uh, before they're, they're, they're captured by the White Cloaks, Hopper charges in uh, and tries to save them and, and gets killed. Mm, and it's I know. It's really this sad. It's super sad. And you find out that Hopper is the, the cub that, when, she, when, uh, when Hopper was a cub, is it he or she? 
He, I he. think. Yeah, yeah, he would jump. He would see the eagles, and he would jump up and down trying to fly like the eagles. I wanted to be the one who topped the highest of all the of all the wolf cubs. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> and so he jumps in out of the darkness, and he kills some white cloaks, but then they, they stab him, and they, they knock out Perrin. Yeah. And it is the saddest thing ever. Uh, Poor de- wolf. Definitely the saddest thing up to this point, you know. Felt, it's felt, our, I felt our it. Dobby death. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, does Dobby die? I, I don't know. Oh, in the Harry Potter books? Yeah. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. Oh my gosh, those <laughs> books came out forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So Perrin wakes up, and he and Egwene are tied up. And not only are they tied up, they're super tied up. Like, with lots and lots of ropes. Uh, because apparently Perrin killed two white cloaks when Hopper died. He he went crazy with his axe. Yeah, because I, I think he... Doesn't he sort of black out a little bit? Like, he, he gets knocked out, yes. But it seems like there's, like, a moment where he just kind of, like, loses it. And he just yeah. like, kind of goes crazy. He goes full wolf. Yeah. And there's this really frustrating interrogation scene where they're uh, they're being asked questions by this grandfatherly guy named Barnhold and his psychotic subordinate Bayer. God, yeah. And Bayer is like like he's like a rabid person. Like his skin is his skin on his face is like his skull, and he's he like looks at them and he hates them. And the parent could tell he hates them. Like he's known them for years, but he's just met them. And he's like, but he's like cold and it like. Yeah, unfeeling about his like hatred. Which and he is... does he does violence. He kicks them, but it, it doesn't. He doesn't look angry when he does it. He's just this is the thing I'm doing now. Doing I'm kicking these people. Yeah, he beats Perrin with a the with a stick, and then he's about to beat Egwene with a stick too. And I gotta say, I think there's a little bit of sloppy writing on Robert Jordan's part here yeah. because yeah. Bayer hates these people. They he talks about how much he hates these people, but at the same time, it also says. His voice has no emotion. Cutting out their tongues would give him no pleasure, no regret. It was just something he would do. So I was like, is he, are we trying to do sort of a Nazi? Oh, I was just following orders Mm -hmm. thing here. I'm just, I have, I'm a, oh my gosh, psychopath or sociopath. Or is it, I really hate these people. I think it could be all of those things. Well, not not so much the just following orders. Because I think I do get the impression that he kind of loved, not likes it exactly, but like it feels like the right thing. That like he's doing the right thing. Like oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. You mm-hmm. know? But I don't. I don't get the impression there's any any empathy there or any sympathy. Yeah, I I, f- I found him to be a confusing character. Mm-hmm. I think he's just. <laughs> I think it's the children of the light suck, and he's like he's a children of the light, sure, a child of the light, and they are dicks. Mm-hmm. God, I hate the children of the light in this book. Yeah, but his the the other guy Bornhold is actually somewhat reasonable mm-hmm. uh you can tell that he's a is a believer right but he you know he says things like you know these people aren't necessarily dark friends just because they're doing shady stuff in the dark you know we, we need to find out what's what's actually going on here but he also is, doesn't stop br from yeah being the shit out of them but at the same time it's it's like maybe a good cop bad cop thing could be yeah. buyer is there and buyer is terrifying because he's he's crazy i my read on him is that he's a psycho that he he He's found a place that he can be, like he's got a job with the Children of the Light that lets him do violence, and he loves doing violence, and that's it. Yeah, and, well, and this the, this lets him feel justified in doing violence. Like he's, I, I can do these awful things, but still be a good person. I don't know if yeah. he's a psycho. I think he's more of a fanatic. You think so? I do. I, I think that the captain might be, but I don't know that. I don't know. Oh, that... I thought we were talking about the captain. Oh no, oh, no, I, yeah, I'm in Byer. Byer. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think Byer is a total sociopath. Yeah, psycho. But yeah, the captain. Is not a psycho. The captain is, yeah, yeah, like I said, pretty seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, he he, as you said, a true believer. I think he's just he's he thinks he's doing the right thing, and he probably sees Byer as like a tool, like as, as a yeah, he's a definitely weapon, okay uh, with a weapon with, of light. 
speaking what Briar's doing. Speaking of tools and weapons, we have something curious here. They're they're messing around with Perrin's axe, and Byer describes this. He says it's not a villager's weapon or a farmer's. This was made by a good weaponsmith, perhaps even a master. So we've got mm. Perrin's axe. We've got Rand's Heron Mark sword. Mm. Where are all these awesome weapons coming from? Well, yeah, uh, we, this was made by Master Luhan. Like okay. Master, there's a there's a little story about it. This was a long time ago. It was like Master Luhan made it for a, a merchant's guard, a merchant's guard who then refused to pay, or was going to pay him like half of what he agreed to, and instead okay. Master Luhan was like, "I'll just keep it then." Just so we've got this amazing master weaponsmith living in a village, even though they say not a village. Right? Yeah, and he for doesn't sure. he doesn't make weapons. You no, know, he's a village blacksmith. He makes horseshoes. Yeah, but apparently he made this really. So there there could be more to Master Luhan as well. I guess. Yeah. 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 It seems, yeah, it seems weird. Emmonsfield is I think that's a kind of the idea that, you know, that Emmonsfield is, is the Shire and everything there is wonderful. You know, their, their tobacco is the best. Their blacksmith is the best. Their inn is the nicest, right? Their innkeeper is totally not a cannibal. <laughs> Look, I, I think we've all agreed that, that Bran Alvier is a cannibal. Brannable is the cannibal. Bran at best. <laughs> Bran is short for Brannable. <laughs> <laughs> And his name is Brannable the Cannibal. Everybody's always asking him, "What? So, what is your name short for anywhere, any anyway?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't feel like talking about it." And then that person disappears. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Eaten by wolves. I'm doing air quotes right now in case you can't tell. <laughs> Eaten by wolves. All uh, right. Yes. Good. And this is the point on the podcast where we talk about how Bran Alvier is maybe a cannibal. Definitely, almost certainly a cannibal. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, Jeff. I interrupted you with my. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. With your yeah. very important. So your point you were making about Evans Field. Oh yeah, it's it's idyllic, right? I used that word before, but it's it's a paradise where the the cottages are all snug and warm, and everybody has enough to eat, and you can live out on your farm, and it doesn't suck to live on your farm because the soil is good and it's good hard work and it makes you feel satisfied, and just everything is good there. Yeah, the only thing you have to worry about are the was it the the, the Fair Ford people Terran Terran Ferry Ferry folk folk. coming to cut your throat. <laughs> yeah, and maybe send Bowie every now and then because he's like an old cotter. Yeah. So that's so this is part of that. Like this, the, even the blacksmith axe that he made one time is like the nicest thing ever because it's good. It's like the the in America. There was this big changeover right after the time of the revolution between artisans making goods and factories making goods. And that we have always had this sort of, I don't call it a myth, but this idea that handmade things are inherently better than mass-produced things. Yeah. The things of an agrarian society uh, where people do, do mostly agriculture are just sort of better and higher quality than the things of a modern economy where we don't work directly with our hands. And this is, I think, an, an instance of that. The idea that a, a dude, a, a craftsman working on his own makes things that are better than what we could, what you could get in a big city. Uh, that's, that's what I think is a, a theme that, our, that Robert Jordan likes. Like the, the agrarian lifestyle is paradise. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the, as they've moved to cities further and further from Evansfield, for example, the inns are kind of less nice. Like the, the, in the White Bridge, the inn they go to, he's like, oh, you know, uh, they they would never let the inn in Emmonsfield get like this. You know, it's such a mess. Or, yeah. Uh, but it's so perfect and, and lovely in the land where I'm from. Even though people are constantly making fun of them for being from small towns. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. True. All right. Yeah, so anyway, the axe is great. And uh, Byer says, this is a nice axe. 
uh, and therefore you're a dark friend. Uh, which is it's kind of Byer's answer to everything. Like, yeah. I want to kill you because I want to kill everybody, and because everybody's dark friends. But yes. luckily the, the Lord Commander, Captain Guy, is like, no, nah, no, no. They're probably not dark friends. Yeah. But. <laughs> and they, uh, he's, but the Lord Commander is definitely looking for reasons to think that they're dark friends. Yeah. Like they talk about Trollocs and he's like, well, you're familiar with Trollocs. That means you're probably dark friends. And they talk about, they talked, they mentioned that they had spoken to a warder and they're like, well, you spoke to a warder. That means you're probably dark friends like the Aes Sedai are. Yep. So it seems like everything they say and gets the wolves, them into trouble with Wolves them. are definitely agents of the Dark Ones. So yeah. That probably means you guys are dark friends. Right. Which we actually know isn't true. Yeah. In fact, they say that, you know, oh, well, actually that's not true. Wolves are, wolves hate Trollocs. Wolves hate the Dark One. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, definitely you're wrong and you're de- that sounds like something a dark friend would say. Yeah. So, you know, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. So it doesn't feel like there's much that they can say that would get them off the hook here. Yeah, the, the, what I get from this is that this this even the most reasonable among the children of the light are murdering zealots, and there's no there is no chance for fairness coming from children of the light ever. Yeah, That's the impression we get. Yeah, they're like these crazy crazy right wingers. Zeal yeah. is to be applauded. Yeah, right. So yeah, there's this interrogation. He's asking them questions, but he mentions like basically everything you said tells me that you're guilty, and. Uh, I think I'm reasonable. Yeah, okay, there's this other moment where Byer says there were, you know, a dozen guys out there. We killed half of them, and there were hundreds of wolves, and we killed a bunch of them too, uh, which is we know is not true. We know there's one guy out there, and we know there's what four wolves out there. Three or four. Three, yeah. yeah, there's three wolves out there's there. Wind, Dapple, and yeah. Hopper. Yeah, it was it. Hopper. Yeah, and they and, and Byer's like this, but you know how they do. They'll probably drag away their corpses before dawn, so we won't get a real count. And uh, this guy, Bornhold, who, by the way, is the father of that Bornhold that they met in Barillon. Oh, I didn't catch that. The, the guy that started trying to stop him at the gate. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he mentions it quickly. My son, Bornhold, is... is uh, oh, my son, Dane. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, and this this guy says, well, you know, there's probably only one or two guys out there, probably only a few wolves. Uh, it, it's a night engagement, so it, it, their numbers seem to be multiplied. So he seems actually very reasonable. True. But nonetheless... He says, we're, we're going to take you to Amador, and we're going to put you on trial, and Egwene, you know, you might be able to talk your way out of this, but Perrin, you killed two of us, you're dead. We're going to hang you. Yep. Nothing you say matters, we're going to hang you no matter what. Yeah. Which really sucks. Yeah. Because yeah. Perrin so far hasn't done anything wrong. Children of the Light are the worst. Yeah, they are the worst. That So that leads to chapter 31, Play for Your Supper. And you see a, a Heronmark sword, for some that, reason. That- Sword doesn't look super. I mean, that, that mark doesn't look very heron-y. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the top looking down. No, I, I, I wait. Oh, wait. What do you mean? Like that's the top of the heron's head? I, yeah, I thought it was just the head that we saw. Oh, maybe that's the what pointy I mean. part was the beak. No, I think you're right, but I just don't think it looks very much like a heron. Like if if someone were to ask me what that looked like, I'd be like, oh, maybe a torch. But apparently, that's what the heron mark is. Yeah. Well, you know, I do not know what a heron looks like, so... It, it looks a little bit like an ibis. I do not know what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> a crane? A crane. Oh, yeah, I've seen a lot of those, like at construction sites. Yeah, a heron looks very, very much like a crane. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, so play for your supper. Uh, Rand and Matt are traveling down the road, and they're having just a miserable time. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to... Uh, it seems like every time the, the horsemen come down the road, they dive off the road, because they're... They yeah. don't know who's friendly and who's not. Yeah, they're worried about... It could be a mirrored roll, it could be dark friends on horses. 
and they don't have any money, and they don't they're not really equipped for for traveling a long distance, and they're they're sleeping out in the open a lot. They don't have enough money really to buy food, and they're working at farms. They're working their way. And Matt is still acting super weird. Yeah, worse than ever. He's extremely paranoid. He's he's fingering his dagger all the time. He's like reaching into his coat and grabbing his gold his jeweled dagger. Rand at one point makes the what I think is very reasonable suggestion that they try and get some money with the dagger to like yeah. not have to do this try this. and sell it. Yeah, and Matt just kind of flips his flips his Yeah, Matt shit. goes crazy. Why do you want to get rid of the dagger? Why do you why are you jealous or something? And it's why don't you sell sell your the sword your father gave you instead? Yeah, yeah. and he's like, Yeah, yeah, they're your only keepsake of your father whose relationship that you're worried about. Yeah. And uh and Rand, and Matt this is totally different from Matt's character up to this point. He's be, he's acting Really shady with this strange dagger from Shadow Logoth that it carries a curse on it. Yeah. Uh, wait, I mean, is it? I mean, it Remember? Could, it, maybe you, it's not cursed. Yeah. If he gets you to take something past the walls, then he'll take over your personality or it's something? It's probably fine, Jeff. <laughs> it's just a dagger. See, and- Matt is my least favorite character in this entire series, above oh, yeah. and beyond. Because, well, because you... So we so they talk about a little bit at the beginning, oh, he's this jokester, this prankster, but you never get to see that aspect of his personality, really. Because mm-hmm. he's so quickly, just within the first... Ten chapters, I think, they're in Shatter Logoth, and he gets this dagger, and he starts changing. So you don't get a chance to know him the way he was supposed to be before he has this dramatic transition. So you never get a chance to like him. That's mm-hmm. a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we we know from stories told about him that he's supposed to be this like friendly, happy-go-lucky guy, but yeah, pretty quickly he starts being, you know. Yeah, all you see is idiocy and impetuousness. Like when they decide to, when he convinces them to go wandering around this crazy this mystery city after dark without telling anyone you never find there's never anything likable about him literally never yeah as, as annoying as naive is matt is very frustrating as a character because you whenever he does something you're like that is not the right thing to do that is so obviously not the right thing to do you know yeah he's just an asshole who's suspicious of people all the time and even rand at in this chapter has a point where he has to stop him from uh shooting an arrow at a farmer who uh Shoes them off his land. Well, yeah, and, and the reason the farmers often shoo them off their land, is, uh, their land, is because Matt is giving them dirty looks. Yeah, like, it's like they, acting they, super suspicious. They hire on to work, and they, you know, it's a fair deal. They chop some wood or something, and the farmer gives them some some food to eat, and like Matt is just glaring at him, like, Rawr! yeah. Like, and then and, and the farmer's like, no, you guys can't stay here after all. You don't remind me of my sons after all mm-hmm. because my sons didn't give me evil looks all the time. Yeah. So Matt is, yeah, yeah, he's just straight up ruining this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they would have a much easier time, if not for Matt. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, when you read this previously, you really liked Matt's character. Would you say that was true later on, or? Later on. Later on, okay. So th- so this point, he wasn't, like, particularly appealing yeah, to Yeah, when I read this the first time, to this point, I didn't, I didn't have a read on either of these three guys' characters. Yeah. Because Rand doesn't seem to have much distinctiveness to his character, he's just sort of Bland. Yeah, bland. Rand is bland. Bland Rand. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, you know, he he's kind of worried that his, he doesn't know who his real parents are. The end. Yeah. And Perrin is just riding around with a cool axe. And Matt, is his character changes so much that you, you don't even know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And I would say, not to spoil it too much, but the character he eventually becomes is different from all of these things. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, so, I want to I wanna mention something. So, Rand has these... Moments where there's an italicized text where he's thinking to himself mm-hmm. things. Uh, is, do you think he's starting to hear voices? 
because they don't sound. Let me try and find an example. Uh, th- this is not the first time this has happened. Um, no matter what it looks like, a small voice whispered his mind, it isn't really home. Even if you could go into one of those houses, Tam wouldn't be there. Da 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 da. There's taunting laughter in his head. You might as well stop. One place is as good as another when you aren't from anywhere, and the dark one has you marked. Yeah, there's all. So there, this is not the first time this has happened. It happened in a couple previous chapters. And mm. I forgot to mention it, but it's, do you think this is like maybe some some insertion from his dreams? Because his dreams are seemingly having a greater effect on his life. But I wonder if this is like an early yeah. touch of the dark one kind of thing. I didn't I didn't notice that when I was reading because I was I just thought Rand is pretty down on himself, bro. It's but a, you're right. Yeah, it's only, it is taunting. It's I mean, definitely like, worth yeah. noting that he, he seems to have an internal voice that that. Doesn't have his best interest at heart. I yeah. think it's Balsamon. Yeah. That's, or the mm-hmm. dream version, whatever that is. They haven't mm-hmm. said it, and it's kind of subtle, but it does, I, feel, I agree. I feel. I think it feels like this could be the voice of Balsamon kind of like messing with him a little bit. Yeah. So they're traveling down the road, uh, and Matt, oh, sorry, Rand has an evil voice talking in his head, and, and Matt is acting really weird with his cursed dagger. Yeah. Uh, and they're not having a very good time. And they, yeah, they see a lot of towns, like from that quote Alice was uh, mentioning. They see towns that look just like Emmons Field, except they don't freak out for strangers because they get strangers all the time. But they right. can't stop there. Uh, and then they're working. And uh, at one particular farm, there's a kind of a turning point, the Grinwells. <laughs> what a great name. Yeah. The Grinwells. Yeah, the Grinwells. They're working there and they spend the evening with the Grinwells. And uh, the oldest daughter of the Grinwells uh, is Health. a saucy farmer's daughter who has <laughs> a thing for Matt. Oh, sorry. A thing for Rand. Yeah. Robert Jordan is definitely relying on the old the trope there. The the oversexed farmer's daughter. Is that a trope? Yeah. I think that's a thing. It's a thing. It's yeah, a thing. it is. I yeah. don't know. Sleep in the barn, but don't touch my daughter. <laughs> yeah, but she's like they're working and, and like Rand is chopping wood with his shirt off and she's like hanging out sighing at him. Oh, <laughs> And he's like, I'm going to put my shirt back on. She's, making him uncomfortable. She's yeah. very predatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if it had been switched and it was a dude who was doing that to a girl, that would come across as super rapey. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. It, 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 it seems to be making, making him very uncomfortable and objectified. I feel mm-hmm. bad for Rand. Yeah, but they, because he's trying to, uh, yeah, there's this kind of funny scene where the mother snaps to what's going on. She figures out that, like, her daughter has locked on to this guy. Yep. And so she's trying to, you know, the dad. The dad's like, well, why don't you stay on to work some more? And the mother's like, no, 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 you got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And she says, oh, instead of sleeping in the barn tonight, you guys can totally sleep in my daughter's room. My daughter will sleep with me. She'll sleep in the bed with me and you guys can share a bed together. <laughs> yeah. And Elsie grimaces at this. Yeah. <laughs> Elsie even sounds like kind of a farm daughter kind of name, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, to kind of stave off this awkward evening where uh, Elsie is is glaring, smirking, what do you call that? Leering at Rand? Leering, yeah. I think Leering, it's a good word, um, yeah. Matt uh, juggles a bit, and Rand pulls out the flute that he has from Tom Marilyn and, and plays a bit, and they they the farm people are really entertained. Yeah, this apparently is pretty great. the Gleeman School paid off more than we thought, you know? Yeah, this that's... Yeah, they they play all night. By all accounts, previously they were doing pretty poorly, but now they seem to be doing all right. In, in fact, like I, th- I think at one point they're they're saying like, "Oh, I, this is way better than than the entertainment I would pay money for in an inn." So you know. Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, and then Rand after they manage to get out of that situation and head on down the road, Rand realizes they should be playing at inns because you play at an inn, you get some food, 
you can you get a place to sleep and there's a lot of people traveling it in so you can catch a ride on wagons. This is way better than chopping wood and, and milking cows and stuff. So that's how they, they travel on down the road towards Camelon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another thing I wanted to mention here. Um, and I, I, I noted this in this chapter, but it, it also happened previously. I think it's funny how uh, Perrin and Rand both think the other guy is like a super is super good with ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Perrin would know what to do. Rand would know what to do. Yeah. yeah. When, when Perrin's uh, dealing with dancing, he's like, you know, oh, Rand would know how to deal with this he wouldn't be so awkward and here with else rand is like oh parent would know how to handle this he'd make some joke or whatever so they both have this idea that the other guy has it all figured out yeah i i thought men just knew how to be men (laughs) maybe they should have had some man talk yeah they should have some some man tell them how to man right so that was chapters 26 through 31 Mm -hmm. next time we're going to cover is chapters 32 through 36 i am jeff lake that's at jeff underscore lake on twitter Alice Sullivan. And Micah Sparkman. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at hello at thedragonreread.com. You can find us at thedragonreread.com or on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, please share us with anybody you think will like us. Give us good reviews and uh, on, on wherever you got this, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever, and, and like us in general because we want you to like us. Uh, but also on Facebook yeah. or whatever. Yeah, if you want. Yeah. Until next time. The, the light, light illumine you. you.